It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Prior to recording this session, we were having some offline banter in exchange with our guest today, Christine Roberts, and we were talking about how she's been listening to the podcast and she feels like she knows myself and Whitney already, and that was such a warm, lovely introduction. And for the first time in all of our episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable, Christine's the first guest who admitted prior to recording that she was feeling nervous. And it's interesting because that immediately, I guess, put me at ease hearing about your nervousness, Christine, because I think oftentimes when we are in a position that we're in of, of being coaches or thought leaders or, you know, influencer is a term that gets thrown around or, or someone, I suppose, in the wellness or transformational industry, I think there's sometimes this feeling of pressure that we have to put this game face on and we have to be confident all the time and we have to show up and knock it out of the park and, you know, be 10xing everything and I'm awesome and everything has to be on fire constantly. And so for you to lead off before we hit the record button here, I just felt so even deeper connected to you, even though we're, we're talking for the very first time, we're having this new conversation. And I just, first of all, want to commend you for that level of openness and vulnerability, even though that's kind of a buzzword, but I genuinely felt like I really, really like Christine. The fact that you just went right there, you're like, I'm feeling a little nervous to talk to you today. It's just such a human, real moment. And I suppose I want to start there with you is, is in this conversation today with Whitney and myself, I feel like there is this incredible amount of pressure for someone who is an online content creator to put on airs, so to speak, and have this presentation of being an expert or a guru or that, you know, they've always got it together. And I think for you, just already feeling into your work and researching you, you come at it from just a very real open-hearted perspective. Mm. Well, thank you. And I completely agree with you. I struggle with that whole idea of, you know, having it together all the time, because I think that I feel like I have it together a lot of the time, but not all the time. And those times then we feel like we don't have it together. It is, it is kind of scary to be vulnerable and admit to it. And I think, I don't know, for me, just it's been in like the last week that I've just been in a funk. Now we, my husband and I had tested positive for COVID on December 28th. And so I've just come through that and it's, I'm still not feeling a hundred percent actually. I know if you can hear my nasally voice, uh, my head's kind of still plugged up, but just, you know, I'm, I'm such a type A where after the first, you know, in the beginning of the year, I'm doing my goals and reflecting on last year and what am I going to accomplish? And it's like my whole, everything's been derailed because of, of getting sick and it has been tough. And then the other thing too, is from a vulnerability standpoint, like you said, I'm, if you checked out my website, you know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional environment actually with, you know, alcoholism, domestic violence, sexual abuse. And it's like when you, you know, I've gone through such a journey in my life of forgiveness and really facing so many of those demons 
and I'm so thankful. I mean, I feel so good in my skin of who I am, but it's, it's like, I just feel like I want to be an open book to other people because a lot of those things, you know, for any listeners out there that have things that you have shame about, or, you know, there's just like this, that whole not worthy. It's like when we face it head on, it is so liberating. And so I've just learned from going through all this journey of forgiveness with so many different things and just facing it as hard as it is that when you're vulnerable and you just, and you're just an open book, it allows other people to, you know, to divulge those things too, and to face those things, hopefully inspire them to face difficulties. Well, you hit on two things that we cover, I feel, really consistently here. And Whitney and I are very, very focused on, you know, the psychological and emotional ramifications of shame and not enoughness. Those are two subjects that I feel come up pretty often for us because they seem to be just really pervasive with humanity of guilt and shame and these these really sort of, I like to characterize them Whitney and I have discussed how how these things feel somatically in our bodies, right? Of mm-hmm. not just the intellectualization of shame or guilt or not enoughness of we have a thought form in our head of, oh, I, I feel like crap and I'm a loser and I'm a failure and I shouldn't have done that. I ought not have done that. But we get into our bodies and we start to feel that when we talk about something like shame or not enoughness, I feel like there are parts of the body where those emotions manifest. It's really interesting to say when I'm feeling shame, when I'm feeling like I'm not enough, where does that show up? Not just as a thought form, but where is it showing up in my body? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm curious in, in your healing work. And I also want to dig into your past because we have some similarities in that regard mm-hmm. in the forgiveness work. When we're talking about shame, guilt, not enoughness, and we're feeling it literally in our cells, in our bodies. If this is something that you relate to, A, and B, how we get it beyond just thought, but but start to address it on a somatic or cellular level when we feel those emotions in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, as I mentioned before, I've done so much work with all of those different things. And one of the most profound things that I learned a number of years ago, you know, I've learned all these different forgiveness techniques and so forth. But one of the things that really impacted me was this whole idea of letting your feelings flow through you. And I think that what happens is, I don't know, for me, I was used to it growing up, like, you know, there would be comments like, you better stop crying or I'm going to give you something to cry about. And so you learn to squelch your feelings and like not you know, just squelch them. Like you, you shouldn't feel that way. And as I got older, you know, one of the cool things when I was a kid and, you know, my parents did the best they could. So this isn't about bashing them on anything. It's, it's like, as I've learned more and more about my parents and their upbringing and why they are the way they are and all that, you know, there's all that forgiveness for a lot of these things that happened. But one thing that I learned as I, I remember being like 19, and I was dating a guy named Sal. So I'm from the Northeast, right? So, you know, my friends were Tammy Fowino, Kim Evangelo, Dominic Mammoliti. <laughs> and so uh, my boyfriend, Sal, I, I remember being upset and he's asking me what's wrong. And I literally could not articulate what was wrong. And it's really, I just, I'm such, I, I think people, us humans are so interesting. And beca- being a student of myself, and trying to learn about myself has just helped me so much in helping other people. 
And so I remember feeling this feeling of just, I literally could not explain what was wrong with me because I had zero understanding of my feelings. And as I got older, I learned how to ask myself questions, you know, like, what is it that's really bothering me? And when did I start feeling that certain way? And what happened? And, you know, really fundamentally, we all have the same fundamental emotional needs. That's why when you think about people all over the world, you know, I've traveled, I've traveled to Asia and Europe and I've traveled for my jobs and met people in all different countries that spoke different languages in South America. And it's like, it's really interesting because people are people. It doesn't matter where you're from, what nationality you are. We all have the same fundamental needs. And so for me, figuring out how to how to dig down and be able to figure out what's wrong, like articulate my own feelings. And then the second thing with the shame and all of, you know, like the guilt is giving myself permission to feel the way I feel and like letting those feelings flow through me. And <laughs> one thing that I do that if anyone were driving near me sometimes is is I'll go like drive somewhere and it's not like I do this all the time, but when there's been different things that bother me, I'll be driving and just have like a like a temper tantrum. You know, I try to do it when I'm not in traffic or anything, but like when I'm driving somewhere and really just start getting like, t- like talking out what it is that's upsetting me and allowing myself to like just get into the emotions and let it flow through me. I remember watching a video of a lady and I cannot think of her name, but she actually helped people like who have terminal diseases and all these different things. And her whole thing was helping them feel their feelings and let them flow through them and get them out of your body. Because like what you were just saying, Jason, all of these things manifest inside of us. I mean, we're made up of cells and energy. And so it's like when we have all this stuff going on inside of us, there's things that are happening in our body. And so that's one of the things that's worked for me is to like either journal it out, write out, you know, like stream of thought, say it out loud, get it out. And so, yeah, that's one technique. I love that you shared this because I I feel like prototypically, not, not necessarily across the board, but as someone who identifies as a man, <laughs> 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 he, him, and somebody who ad- identifies as a man. And I feel like I have struggled in my life. And I've, we've talked about this on the podcast in previous episodes, where I've always been an incredibly emotional, sensitive, receptive person, which, you know, typically, I think, a lot of people might regard sensitivity or having a high EQ or being a receptive person as as more maybe prototypically feminine qualities, energetically speaking. And I think for me, it's been interesting to observe that, you know, men and women in the world, especially in our society, are subjugated and oppressed and conditioned in different ways, but similar ways. And for me, one thing that I always struggled with, and I, and I still do in going to therapy and kind of discussing my emotions, is this idea that you alluded to in your childhood of like, you know, what are you crying about? I'll give you something to cry about. This mentality of you need to be tough. You need to have your walls up. You need to be on the defense all the time. And if you feel threatened, you need to attack people. I mean, it's it's sort of this, for myself as a man in America, feeling this prototypical conditioning of be aggressive, be dominant, 
own the room. You know, you need to be this sort of alpha thing if you're going to succeed in life. And I still feel that pressure because of, say, certain colleagues or associates in the industry that I see them succeed. And they're very much kind of in that alpha role of I know what's correct and I know what the right thing is and you ought to listen to me. And I've made all this money and done all these great things. And it's one of these things where I think, you know, the individual journey requires a lot of courage, especially if we notice throughout our lives we have trauma, we have conditioning, we have programming. And I suppose this is just sort of a macro level addendum to your answer, Christine. But when we start identifying that we have trauma and programming and conditioning, and we build the self-awareness to look at it and go, oh, wow, I really have a lot that I need to work on. I feel like some people gain this awareness of their trauma, their conditioning, things that might be holding them back in life, right? And they say, that's too scary. It's too much work. I don't want to deal with it. And I've seen people make that choice. Other people might make a different choice where they say, Whew, okay, this is frightening. This is probably going to be a lot of work for many, many years, but I don't want to stay stuck here. What do you think is the difference between someone who chooses to stay there because it's too scary, too daunting, all those maybe reasons or excuses versus someone who says this is terrifying and it's the unknown and it's the proverbial dark cave in the middle of the forest, but I'm going to go in there and see what's there and work on myself. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great question. And I've, I've actually thought about that myself. Like why, why is it some people choose, you know, one way of looking at things and some people choose to, to not do anything. And I don't know if that's like how we're wired you know, like I remember when I was 10 years old and I was, you know, we lived in a house that had been built in 1810. It had been vacant for a while. Like when my parents bought it, it was like a broken down house and, you know, we had junk cars in the pasture and like, it was just, it was like a place that I, I remember I was ashamed of, you know, I didn't want anybody coming over to my house and I was sweeping the sidewalk and my dad pulled in and his Dodge Rambler with a case of beer and he was going to go down in the barn and I knew what was going to happen. He was going to get drunk and start a fight with my mom. Then my mom was driving off to bingo to get away from him. And it was me and my two brothers. And I just remember it's so interesting because I literally, I was 10 years old. I remember saying, this will not be my life. And it's, I don't know, it's just really crazy how I just remember that so vividly. And you know, and I even remember thinking to myself, like, this is so screwed up. I need to make sure and handle this stuff when I get older. And I remember going to adult children of alcoholic meetings. And like when I came to Atlanta, so I drove to Atlanta. My a friend of mine moved to Atlanta when we were like in our early 20s. And I came to visit her and I was I just gotten a job selling copiers, paper shredders, and fax, fax machines. And, you know, I didn't go to college. I ended up getting an MBA. I was the first person to be accepted into Georgia State University's executive MBA with no undergrad, which that's a whole nother story. But at the time, you know, my parents divorced and I didn't go to college. And I just remember being devastated because I wanted to go to college. I applied to colleges, but my parents were, you know, they were just caught up in their drama and and they just no one had gone to college. So nobody thought it was important. And I drove to Georgia in my little Nissan Sentra. So I came here to visit my girlfriend whose their family had moved here and we stayed in touch. And I came here to visit. And then I was going to training in New Jersey for this copier company. 
And my girlfriend was like, you need to move to Georgia. And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> so I packed up my little Nissan Sentra with no air conditioning coming to Hotlanta. And I rented a room from my girlfriend's sister. I sold copiers during the day, worked at a clothing store at night, and then I cleaned my girlfriend's parents' house every other week. And I just was on a mission. I mean, I was on a mission from God. I had nobody to send me money, you know, nobody to help me. So, I mean, I had even at a point I had been homeless up in in Rochester where I lived out of my car for about 6 months. And my girlfriend's mom would let me sleep at their house, but like all my stuff was in my car. And I just was determined, you know, when I came here, I started, you know, being in sales. You know, the company had all these opportunities with personal development. So I just got immersed in my early 20s into the psychology of winning and, you know, Tony Robbins and Dr. Vincent Peale and Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy. And I would just, I would spend my money on listening to these things while I drove around. First of all, I just want to comment that your level of storytelling is so wonderful, Christine, because of the details. I know that this is like maybe a, a little bit of an aside in the middle of the uh, the conversation, but you talking about you know being in, in a Nissan Sentra with no air conditioning, driving to Atlanta. I just I just love the details you infuse in all of your stories you've said so far. So I first of all just want to acknowledge that because it feels like it draws me in even deeper. You know, as you're diving into really all of this personal development, Whitney and I are are very much on this train. We've gone to so many conferences and seminars and retreats with different leaders and people like Brendan Burchard and have, have read so many of Tony's books over the years. And it sounds like we're in very similar worlds. One thing that we've come up against is following formulas. And it seems like when we are actively working on growing and transforming, healing our trauma, the things that we're talking about right now, it can be really easy to want to follow someone's formula and say, you know, do these 10 steps, do these five steps, try these things. And inevitably, what we found over and over again is, is that the exact formulas that certain people put out there don't exactly work, at least for us, the way that we expected them to. And I think it's this this curious thing as we go down this journey of of reading books and doing coaching and taking you know weekend workshops and all these things that it seems at a certain point you sort of how did Bruce Lee say this? Bruce Lee has this great quote about you study things and you're a student of life and you take what works and you leave the rest. And I think some people we've noticed you know are so aligned with like you know this this is the thing we've done and these are the ten steps you need to do and blah blah blah, but. Oftentimes we find that we're, I don't know, kind of making it up as we go, that maybe we are the ones responsible for creating our own life path and we can't exactly mirror someone else's, you know? Yeah. So I am with you 100% because like you're saying, it's been years. I've read so many things. I'm looking right now at my some of my books, you know, Mindset by Dr. Dweck and Psycho-Cybernetics and the Molecules of Emotion. And I'm Christian, so I read, you know, like Bible stuff. And like I, what I've learned or what I've realized is that so many things out there, it's like that's it's like it's a lot of the same stuff, but it's got different labels. So there's a lot of things that I think for each person you have to figure out what resonates for you and apply those things and different things speak to different people. So 
like you're saying, it's, you know, there's just so many methodologies and, and different programs and all that. And it, it can be overwhelming because I am, you know, I'm into all of that kind of stuff. But a lot of things, I just try to figure out what works for me, what speaks to me. Yeah, I think that's it is, is we gravitate and we magnetize toward toward people and philosophies and perspectives that that light us up, hopefully, right? They They ignite something in our soul. And I want to go back to this idea of forgiveness before before we move on too far from it, because mm -hmm. I think that this is something that is extremely challenging. It's challenging for me, certainly. And it's it's interesting because recently I had a, a person that came up in my mind, this was probably last month, that I thought I had, I don't know how I want to even phrase this, not finished my forgiveness work. I, I, that's a kind of a clunky way to maybe even phrase this, but... I thought that I was complete with them, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there were some interesting layers of judgment and resentment that kind of came up out of nowhere. You know, I hadn't really felt those feelings around this person in a long time. And it was really surprising of, oh, wow, look at that. There's still resentment and anger and judgment toward this person. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I thought we dealt with that. And so in, in your philosophy, in, in what you've done, Christine, with your forgiveness and, and going back to talking about your family history and some of the trauma and, and situations you experienced there, I would love to know more details about that journey mm -hmm. for you and exactly how you tackled even starting to try and forgive. And to piggyback on my experience, if there's been any moments you're like, ah, I've let that go, I've forgiven them, I've released them, we're cool, we're cool, we're cool. And then maybe a few years later, you're like, oh, I really have so much anger toward them, I didn't know it was still there. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. So with like, for example, with my father, you know, he was an alcoholic and he would be verbally abusive and just say really mean stuff when he was drunk. And uh, my my perceptions of him, he ended up, so there was a point when I moved to Georgia and I started going to, elk, you know, adult, elk, adult show of alcoholic meetings and those meetings, you know, helped me a little bit. But then I discovered that a lot of people would just be blaming their parents for everything. And I was like, I don't want to, like, I'm an adult now. I'm not, I don't want to blame my parents, but I want to like address things, face them and move on. And so I went to actually a three-day event called the Forum, the Landmark Forum. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it was like intense. It was like this really intense personal development like event, three days. And the premise was that everything in life is empty and meaningless. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? But ultimately, it's so true, right? Everything is an event, you know, you and I, you know, you, Whitney, and I could go to a party and the same events happen. Whitney might think it was awesome. You might think, yeah, it was pretty good. I could think it's terrible. It's really, we all have our perceptions of something. And one of the things that was interesting is I had been estranged from my dad at that point because every time I talked to him, he would be, you know, he would be drunk and he would just say mean stuff. And after a while, it's kind of like, okay. It's best for me not to talk to him. Well, he got assaulted in a bar and somebody took a crowbar to his head. He ended up being in the hospital for several months and ended up being getting detoxed over that. And, you know, I ended up getting in touch with him. So I'm at this forum, this event, and they said they want you to face something. Like you need to go ask for forgiveness or you need to go, you know, complete the relationship with your parents. 
So I went and I had not talked to my dad in a long time. I went and I called him and I said, I want to fly you to Atlanta. I want you to know who I am, um, you know, what I've accomplished. And, you know, I want you to know, I want to talk to you. And, and I, it was so scary. It was so scary because I had not talked to him in years. And he says, yeah, sure. And he really was destitute. Like he didn't really own anything. I flew him down. And what was really interesting is like talking to him as an adult and asking him questions. I realized he was so different than what I remembered because my perceptions of him were the perceptions of a 16-year-old girl. And I was like 26 at that point. And I just decided to forgive him. And I told him, you know, all my, you know, like what issues I had with him. And he said he was sorry. And so it was really cool because if I hadn't faced that, I'm sure I would still have a lot of issues. But he ended up dying at 58 of a heart attack. But I'm I'm so thankful that I just handled that situation. And one of the things that I thought was cool in this seminar was like they talk about completing the relationship, which I, you, Jason, I heard you use that terminology a few minutes ago. So you probably are familiar with this, but it's not that you are holding hands, skipping down the lane. It's just that you're, you're, you're at peace with that relationship, whatever, however it may be. And then with the sexual abuse, that was something that I, that was like suppressed for years. And I had tremendous shame around that because I was a little kid. I was like four and five years old and it was a family member that, you know, did things to me for a long time, a number of times, quite a few times. And I never told anybody. And even though as an adult, intellectually, I knew it wasn't my fault, there's some weird thing when you've been sexually abused. And so I finally told my mom and she luckily you know, handle, she luckily responded the way that I needed, you know, like in a supportive way. And I did some counseling and kind of faced it. And I felt like I forgave and I, and forgiveness, you know, one thing, any listeners out there, when you think about forgiveness, it's not that what happened was okay, or you condone what happened. It's deciding that you can't control it. It's deciding for me, for me as a Christian, I'm giving it up I'm giving it up to the Lord because I can't change, you know, like I, there's nothing I can do. It's forgiving for me because there's that saying, hanging on to bitterness and angerness and or um, bitterness and anger is like swallowing a poison pill and expecting the other person to die. And I just think that's whenever I've forgiven, it's incredible the peace that you feel. And so I felt like I had handled that situation. And then when my daughter was like five years old. That's the age I was when the sexual abuse happened. And all of a sudden it came back up. I mean, I went to a retreat and I did like a whole ritual to forgive again. So I think it is a layering that you can have something that you think you've handled it and then something triggers another level. So that's definitely not unusual. And I know for myself, I felt like, oh, I felt like I felt so good. Like, okay, I've dealt with this. I'm ready to move on. And then it's, you know, it came up again. And so I don't know, maybe it'll come up again. It's just, it's just like deeper levels and trying to face it every time. And for me, it's like forgiveness. It's almost like I have to do some kind of ritual, you know, like I went to a retreat and I, 
I went and did, you know, these women came in and they, they asked me the, you know, to share what happened, like the worst memory I had and like, kind of like a cleansing. And so for me, it's like, I feel like I have to do something to like a ritual to forgive. It's interesting listening to both of you talk about this because I'm I'm sitting here reflecting on what forgiveness I might have to do, you know, like, yeah. and the first thing that comes up for me is that, hmm, I can't think of anything. Well, God <laughs> I'm bless sure, you, Whitney. <laughs> I'm, awesome. sure it, I'm sure it's there, but it doesn't immediately come to mind. Like listening to Jason's story about him realizing this, like maybe sometimes it comes up for us when we're not looking for it, for example. But then I wonder, A, am I suppressing it? Is, is it just that I'm I'm thinking that I've forgiven someone when really I haven't? Like that's one question. And then B, wondering like, do I forgive too quickly in a way? Because I often identify as a people pleaser and I don't like carrying around intense emotions towards other people. So I think I try to move th- through them really quickly as like a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're forgiven. But maybe it's like buried deep down. They haven't really been forgiven. But because it's so deep, it doesn't come to the surface easily. And so consciously, I can't even think of an example, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder, you know, and maybe you're good. I think... It's like, to me, it's when there's things happening in your life that are causing problems. You know, maybe it's relationships and you're in a, you know, maybe there's challenges in a relationship and you keep kind of falling into the same patterns or, you know, certain situations happen and it causes you to have angst or, you know, stress. You know, like one of the things I think about is I've been like a workaholic in my life and I've really had to work hard to stop doing that. And when you start seeing patterns of behavior that's not really healthy, to me, that's when it's a matter of digging down deeper. But I think that it is possible for people to have, you know, like I have a friend and she grew up in a home where... I mean, she like we tell our stories, and she's just like life. You know, I really had the best childhood, and, and I my parents just love me so unconditionally, and told me I could do anything. And she's got great relationships with her everybody, and so you know, I think that it just depends on the person. And if you don't, you know, if if you feel happy and healthy, and you don't have anything, maybe you don't have any major <laughs> things that you have to forgive for. Who knows? I don't know. One thing you brought up, Christine, was being a workaholic, which I feel like I can identify with. And one of the things that Whitney and I discuss a lot, not just here on the podcast, but offline as as friends and people that have known one another for a long time is the feelings of, I feel like it's this interesting cocktail, this amalgam of setting the bar really high for ourselves, having expectations of who we think we ought to be or perhaps family pressures or pressures of society. Or for me, you know, one of the things that I've need, needed to be extremely mindful of in working myself literally to exhaustion, there's been a few health challenges that I've had over the years that I I know that my pushing myself, pushing myself, overworking myself, because that's what everyone told me to do. Like, yo, you think you know your limits? You can push past those limits, push past your limits, man. You don't even know what your limits are. And, and 
really aligning with this philosophy of, I suppose, what we would call the hustle culture of trying to outwork each other. And he or she who works the hardest wins. And there's this proverbial gold medal we will be bestowed with by outworking everyone. Mm-hmm. And we hear these heroic stories of people like Tony or Will Smith or Olympic athletes of saying, you know, I might not be the most talented, but I will outwork everyone in the room. Everyone else is literally dropping to their knees. I'll keep going. Mm-hmm. And that mentality, I have experienced success through that mentality, but I, I personally have also experienced overwhelm, burnout, anxiety, depression. It's really the needle has swung in the opposite direction with it, too. So mm-hmm. I notice that your your motto is do less, be more. Mm-hmm. Now, when I hear that, right? There's a part of me that like, oh, God, that feels so good. I feel like I'm going to go to Tahiti. <laughs> I'm just going to chill. I'm just going to do less and be more here with my coconut in my hammock. But then there's that other part of me because of sort of the mentality of I feel like I need to be the hardest worker in the room. And I grew up in a very blue collar family in Detroit that, you know, we, we had a lot of economic struggles growing up. And so there was that yeah. attendant pressure of I can't allow myself to be destitute. My father ended up being homeless, actually, and and dying on the streets. Mm. So mentally, for me, there's all of this, like, you can't put your foot off the gas. You can never take your foot off the gas, which I know isn't true, Mm -hmm. but it's a persistent feeling I have. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question and the thing I want to unpack, because it's so relevant, again, to the discussions Whitney and I have, Christine, is unpack do less be more for us Mm -hmm. especially for someone like me who gets triggered by that phrase and like what do you mean do less i have (laughs) if i want to be more i have to do more (laughs) yes oh my goodness well when i say that you know this journey of life and just learning so much along the way and you know a similar thing jason it sounds like we had similar backgrounds i mean you know, it was a mindset of, of, you know, working all the time. It was very lack mindset of, you know, never having enough money, always killing yourself. And, you know, I've, I've had a couple situations in my life with jobs where I just, you know, I just worked all the time and to the point where I had like bulging discs in my neck and, you know, just constant migraines and things like that. But what I discovered, and it's like, I'm, I know I mentioned to you that in 2016, life felt so out of control. You know, we have two children. At the time, they were 10 and 12, and I was working all the time. My husband was working. On paper, we had everything. We had the big house, fancy cars, you know, tremendous abundance in every way. But life just sucked. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I mean, life is not fun. And so we ended up selling our house, selling our cars, gave away most of our stuff, and we bought a, a RV and a Jeep, and we traveled America for a year. And we we had an internet, like a you know, network on board. Our kids did the K-12 George Cyber Academy. We worked while we traveled. But what was interesting is I still worked a lot, even though we traveled America. And during that time, it's kind of like I've gone through this evolution of trying to look in the mirror and figure out why. Like Whitney, you know, like a minute ago when we were talking about forgiveness, like it's like I'm sitting here going, I've got the same patterns, like that wherever you go, what is it? Wherever I go, there I am. I was still like just trying to overachieve and and I realized the whole thing going back to trying to just uh, you know uh, get approval and you know never wanting to fail and not that anybody wants to fail and I I don't want to fail but it's like constantly seeking approval 
because, you know, Christine, you're, you're one of our top people. You, you can do more than everybody else. And, and like, it's almost like creating this persona where people tell you, oh, you can do like four people's jobs and, and like having to feel like you got to live up to that. And then it's like, wait a minute, this is BS. Like I'm miserable. You know, I'm not on this earth to suffer. And why am I doing this? Why do I keep getting into this situation where I'm constantly overextending myself? It's because I'm trying to be this superhero. And I just think in life, there's this tension between contentment and achievement, right? Like we all want to grow, learn, and be better. I mean, I am, I'm, a, I'm just an achiever-oriented person, although I've had this revelation of realizing that I am enough. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I mean, I want to be the best I can be, and I strive to be better today than I was yesterday. However, you know, trying to to like do so much to to look like I'm, you know, the superhero, it's not healthy. And so the do less be more is all about slowing down to speed up. Like in life stepping back and when we're when we're overextending ourselves, when we're maxed out and we have no bandwidth, it's like stop. <laughs> you know, there's this thing, activity I have in my coaching program is about the, you know, saying no, because I would never say no to things. You know, people would ask me to do stuff and it's like, I get things done. So then everybody wants me, you know, I become the president of everything. And, you know, if something's going on, people aren't getting it done. I just get it done. However, now I'm just come through this evolution of realizing that, and I think for a lot of people, it is that whole idea of feeling like, you know, I mean, the feeling of not enough, I think is a prevalent thing with a lot of people. And it's realizing that you are enough and you don't need to prove yourself to anybody. You just need to be the best for you. And create the best life for you to be happy and joyful and fulfilled. Because at the end of the day, when we're laying on our deathbed, nobody's going to say, oh man, I sure wish I would have worked more and spent less time with my family. You know, like that's just, that's just kind of the evolution of how that came about. I think the the thing that comes up for me, right. And in, in hearing that about the perception of being on our deathbed, which I, I actually think about quite often and not necessarily in a, in a morbid or morose way, but to maybe put a different context on things of, of what am I really spending my time doing? Mm -hmm. And I think that what we, at least at the time of this recording and certainly in 2020, the myriad challenges and chaos and opportunity and upheaval and surreality of everything we've been going through in this world, that my not only appreciation for the people in my life, but this almost unquenchable desire to be with them. Of course, we're limited with certain people in life and, and health restrictions and people's perceptions on what's going on. But you talk about you know this idea of spending more time with family. And what it brings up for me is this idea that I equate financial abundance working, right? If I'm going to work and I'm going to generate more wealth for myself, wealth in a vacuum to me 
doesn't hold much meaning, right? If I look at my bank account and I'm like, oh, okay, there's, you know, it's not like I have a stack of gold in the back of my house in a safe and there's not this physical thing. It's it's really now numbers on a screen. And I'm looking at the numbers and going, okay, this is kind of arbitrary. I'm measuring my self-worth by this number. We're obsessed with numbers, but Mm -hmm. it's not really about the amount. It's about, for me at least, the amount of freedom and choice that I feel based on what kind of wealth that I've generated for myself, right? And so this idea of spending time with my loved ones or, you know, when we can do it maybe safely again, taking, you know, vacations and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this rub mentally for me of, yeah, but you need to work to make the money to have the freedom to spend the time with you people you love. And if you don't work enough and you don't have the freedom, then, well, your safety's in jeopardy and you can't really feel comfortable spending time with the people you love because you can't provide for yourself. So it's almost this fine line of, we go back to the word enough, right? Mm-hmm. Of what is enough? What's enough money for me? What's enough of a feeling of security or safety? What's enough of anything? And it's a really interesting word yeah. because to me, it has so many connotations. It has so many meanings for each one of us of what does that even mean? You know, what's enough success? What's enough accolades? What's enough recognition? What's enough wealth? And I think these are the questions that I really want to get clearer on for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's such an individual thing, right? And it's all relative, you know, because, you know, you might say that you, I don't know, when you think about when you were 20 and, you know, you thought, you know, like when I was 20 or 18, 19, 20, I might've thought $30,000 was like, oh my gosh, that is a ton of money. What would I do with all that money? Then you make $30,000. Then it's like, oh, well, I need to make $50,000. And then it's like, that's so much money. What would I do? So like from a financial standpoint, it's kind of like, to me, there's, it's like the, the carrot just continually moves. And so then it's, you know, thinking about, well, what is success? What is it for me that makes me happy? You know, for us, you know, as I mentioned before, we traveled America for a year in an RV. We now, you know, we live in a, a big house, but I was so happy, like living in an RV with my two kids and my husband. And I had a closet that was about, I had about a foot, maybe a foot and a half of space and two drawers, but I never wanted for anything. You know, we, we had experiences, you know, one day we're hiking the Grand Canyon. The next day we're ATV in Sedona, you know, like we didn't, we didn't have a lot as far as material stuff, but we were so happy. Like to me, it was awesome. And so it really, I think is just depends on the person and what it means. You know, so for each person, I think it's just determining for yourself, what brings me joy? What makes me happy? Like I remember watching Oprah one time and there was some really famous producer. The guy was like a multimillionaire and he had multiple homes and, you know, homes over in Europe and all over. And then he realized that all it did was bring him a lot of headaches and he ended up selling everything. And he lives like in Malibu, like in a double wide mobile home and rides a bike all over the place. And he got rid of all of these material things because he said, it's like to keep up all these things, these material things just took so much energy. And he's He's at so much more peace, just a more simple life. So I don't know. 
I would love to talk more about your experience with the RV because I think that's such a big dream. You know, Jason has talked about living in a tiny home a lot of times, <laughs> which is kind of similar. And I recently did a, a cross country trip and slept in my car and oh, it wow. was so amazing. And I'm like itching to do it again when oh, I, when where I did feel you go? like what, from where to where? Well, from LA to Massachusetts and back. And we did a few episodes about this for, for the listener. If you want to hear more about the experiences, we'll link to that in our show notes at wellevator.com. And it was really interesting for a lot of reasons. First of all, it was during COVID because it was just a few months ago, but, and also during the, or right before the election results came in. So it was like a very interesting time for the country. And, you know, I feel differently about it now because the COVID has gotten increasingly worse. So I, I wouldn't personally do that trip for a little while longer be- until like we get COVID more under control. Cause, you know, I actually too, Christine tested positive for COVID after when I came back from the entire trip. Oh, wow. From LA to Massachusetts, I didn't test positive. But when I came back from Massachusetts to Los Angeles, I did test positive, although it was hard to tell if those results were accurate because then I got two negative test results immediately after. So mm. I who knows if I yeah. actually had COVID or not, but it definitely was scary. I never had symptoms like you had. So I, mm. it's hard to hear people like you talk about how uncomfortable it was, you know, and I was fortunate that even if I did had COVID, nobody I knew tested positive and I didn't have symptoms. Mm. But anyways, I feel like road trips can be kind of addicting in a lot of ways. And I've dreamt a lot about doing something like you did, which was uh, either renting an RV or buying an RV, uh, some building, you know, an RV, which is so popular amongst okay. like millennials. You know? <laughs> yes. It's like everybody That's just kind a huge of- subculture world out there traveling like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think a lot of us fantasize about that. And we think like, wow, life must be so great if we could just minimize everything like you're talking about. It sounds incredible. And wow, I no strings attached. Like I can just drive wherever I want and have all these cool experiences and work on the road. And it's interesting to hear you describe it because my two questions are, it's like, how much did life change for you? Was it as amazing as it seems to do that for so long with your family? And then B, how did you stop? How did you come back to life after that? And where? how did you even make that decision? Did you go into the travels with a specific timeline in mind? Or did you just keep traveling until you decided you didn't want to anymore? And what were kind of the bigger lessons that you learned from from traveling in an RV for mm-hmm. with your family for such an extended period of time. Yeah. So we did plan to do it for a year. So it was a very intentional plan because our kids were 10 and 12 at the time. And so they were still in middle school. And so you, I kind of felt like that, you know, they, they won't get too messed up with it from the school standpoint. And they did the K-12 Georgia Cyber Academy. So they actually had live classes with teachers, like, like almost like WebExes where the teachers were live and they could raise their hands and you know there's powerpoints because my husband and I were both working on the road he worked for Cisco Systems at the time and I was working as a consultant so we were like like during the day we were in the RV working 
doing, you know, WebExes or Zoom calls and, you know, our kids are doing stuff. And so it was, it was a very premeditated timeline of one year. And I would have done it long. I would have loved to have done it longer. The upside for me is I, I loved being with my family. I loved my kids. You know, there's so many life lessons, right? I mean, you, you got to take this thing down everywhere you go. You've got to, there's all these different things you have to do with the, you know, plugging up the electrical. And we had two bathrooms. So we had, you know, like the septic system, there's black water, gray water, like there's just a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, on one hand, people think, oh, it's so simple. Well, it's so funny because everything in life, right, there's trade-offs. And the challenges that we had were things like the RV braking. Like <laughs> we bought it new and we had so many challenges. I mean, we went down to the Keys and then our dog got ringworm and we ended up, we had to come back and have some additional suspension put on the RV. And we were in Orlando and the thing is too, like if you're into technology and innovation and, you know, like my husband, I work in, you know, he works in technology and in my business, I, you know, I'm in the corporate space. So I'm using all the, you know, latest stuff. Well, the RV world, like campgrounds and stuff, a lot of them are still like living in 1970, <laughs> you know, from yep. technology, <laughs> like you, you need to find places to stay and they want you to, they leave, you leave a voicemail and then they're going to call you back and they, yes. they want you to fax them something. And you're like, okay, like nobody has fax machines, Aunt Jean. And, and not all of them are like that, but it's, it's very archaic from, you know, like right now we can go on Expedia and you can find hotels and book them and block things out in the RV world. They're behind the times from that standpoint. Like there is something called like we used RV Trip Wizard, which is it's like a big map, and you can say, oh, I want to drive, you know, six hundred miles, or I want to drive X amount of distance, and it'll plot out, you know, campgrounds around there. But then you have to like manually call a lot of them, and yeah. so the, I did the so same thing when I was. Um I was doing my trip because I, I slept in my car and I stayed at a number of, of campgrounds and uh -huh. it was a whole new experience. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Some of them have websites where you can book online, yeah. but, but you're right. Uh, there were definitely some that, that you had to call and even the websites were so archaic. They yeah. were like built like 20 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's actually kind of sweet and endearing in a lot of ways. And the funniest thing too, Christine, is, is I was driving in a little sedan and, uh, and parking at some of these RV sites. And I was like literally the only person camping in my car <laughs> and the RV people would like give me all these weird looks like, what is she doing? <laughs> so it is a whole new world, you know, oh my and I'm, I'm grateful that I didn't have to deal with the septic issues like you, because that does not sound fun. Oh, God. But it does sound so much better, uh, especially during COVID, because thinking about the bathroom was a constant state of mind. So you're right. There are trade-offs. Like I had to plan every single day, like where was I going to use the bathroom? Mm -hmm. And like adding the COVID element to it was really tricky because I was concerned about, you know, going in where other people were and how clean they were. So... It, it totally is a trade-off. Did you do that by yourself? 
One way I did, one way I drove with somebody else. Okay. I'm like, gosh, you are a pioneer woman. That's... <laughs> but it's funny because there's actually a whole movement of more women doing it for mm-hmm. better or for worse. You know, it, I did a lot of research. I, I drove back by myself. So luckily I got the experience of going cross country with a friend. Uh-huh. And this wasn't my first drive cross country, but I built up my confidence. And then on the way back, I did it on my own. And I did a lot of research to find out safety recommendations. And the number one thing was to follow your intuition. Yeah. Like I read all these articles, I read books and just like tr- tried to prepare myself. And number one was follow your gut feeling. If you get somewhere, if you're around somebody who doesn't make you feel good, you have to leave. Mm-hmm. And you know, to go on a little tangent, I, and I'm curious if you had this experience too, Christine, is that I found that it was actually a good practice for me in trusting people because I realized at the beginning of this journey that I wouldn't trust strangers. I was a really I was afraid of them. And I would find at these campgrounds and these RV sites that people are really friendly and a lot of them just want to talk to you. Uh And I had to start to like let my guard down, but balance that with my intuition. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think it wasn't my intuition that was scaring me. It was like all these preconceived notions that were making me nervous, plus other people that were nervous too. So it was like, a really great opportunity for me to tune in more and recognize like, is this my intuition or is this fear? Mm-hmm. Is this my intuition or is this somebody else's fear that I'm bringing with me? Because people were really nervous about me doing the trip by myself. Mm-hmm. And that was a really fascinating experience. I'm curious if that came up for you as well. I mean, you were with your family, yeah. but I'm sure that also brings another level of like, you have children that you need to protect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I first of all, I commend you for having the courage to do that. I, I think that is so great because... I mean, years ago, when I was in my 20s, I traveled by myself a number of times because for whatever reason, friends couldn't go or whatever. And I was always like, listen, I'm not going to let life pass me by because other people aren't available. And I always had the best experiences. Like I would always meet interesting people. And and I just, you know, now, like you're saying, I always was in, you know, I didn't go down to the ghetto to go eat. You know, I was aware of going to safe environments. And just like with the RV places, you know, it's just like anything. There's there's like the Marriott Courtyard places and there's Bubba Super 8 level places. So it is the kind of thing where, you know, making sure where you're going is, it looks like a reputable place and all that, which I'm sure that's what you did. But I, I did find we met a lot of great people when we traveled. Because like you're saying, campers are like, the nicest people. And it is the kind of thing where, you know, it is, it is like just learning to interact and trust. And if somebody just seems a little odd, like listening to your gut, like what you're just mentioning, but we met, we still have people we kept in touch with. We met some people in Yosemite Pines and the guy was a cranberry farmer in Plymouth, Massachusetts. We literally met them for like 20 minutes at the campsite. And then they were leaving and they gave us their number and said, if you guys get to Massachusetts, give us a call. Well, we ended up going around and we camped at this really fun, cool place in Plymouth. We called them up and they invited us to their 
he, he like provides cranberries to ocean spray. They had us to their cranberry farm and they hosted us with this um, whole big seafood extravaganza on the deck of their home. I mean, it was amazing. And I mean, we knew that we met them for like 20 minutes and we met people in Malibu. We were in Malibu. We're still friends with them. So yeah, like what you're saying, I think we we met so many great people. And I think one of the other things you mentioned, Whitney, was just like, you know, but I still, I still had too much mental clutter. Like I had this fantasy that we, I would be, you know, getting out of this big house and, and like not being in all these different organizations. And, you know, we would just be out hiking every day and, and it was like, I still worked too much. I remember being in Mount Rushmore and my company, they wanted us doing all this, these calls. And I remember going to see Mount Rushmore really late and we couldn't stay. And it's because I was working and I was like, what is wrong with me? You know, like I'm like that whole thing where, you know, wherever I go, there I am. And I, I really feel like I grew a lot during our RV trip. Like it was reflecting on why, why, why do I feel like I have to do all these things at the end of the day? Does it really matter? And that was one of the, that was one of the things actually that was one of the inputs for pulling the trigger on doing, you know, traveling, uh, where I read an article about people in hospice and they asked them, if you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? And the answer, the majority of what they would say is it was about regret, you know, regret that they didn't hike the Appalachian Trail when they were in good health, regret that they didn't say they were sorry, regret that they didn't forgive that person. And I don't know, I think about that stuff. It's like, you know, when I swear, like what you're saying, Jason, when I think about it, when I'm on my deathbed, what, what am I going to wish I did or didn't do? And so, yeah, so the traveling, I think it's awesome. And Whitney, I think that's just really cool that you did that. And and like, just like you're saying, it kind of opened your eyes. It kind of shifted your perception of people. Cause I think we live in such a, a fear-based culture that people are scared of, of so much. And yeah. And it's interesting too, like when you put into this context of regret, right. It, it's fascinating because I think maybe what happens is we have so much fear, mm-hmm. especially right now there's fear of COVID. Oh there's fear of what's going on in politics with our government. There's fear of, you know, a racism and all these judgments we have towards other. It's just like fear after fear after fear. And it's usually the core reason behind a lot of our tough emotions is that we're afraid of something. Mm-hmm. And being afraid of travel, to your point, Christine, it's like, thank goodness I've been able to overcome them. And it's not that I didn't have the fear. It's that I pushed through the fear because Mm -hmm. certainly I didn't really want to drive cross country by myself. And I definitely was afraid of the, like anticipating it was fearful. But I don't think that I experienced any major fear on my trip aside from a couple moments of being nervous about driving, like, you know, I was in areas where people were driving in a way that made me uncomfortable, but that could have happened anywhere, anytime, right? That could have happened in Los Angeles running an errand. And then there was a time I got, had a, a huge rock hit my windshield and I was afraid of like, oh, is my windshield going to shatter? Am I able to drive? It was like yeah. such a small thing. And occasionally I would be afraid of something happening to my car. But those are things that I experienced anyway. So mm-hmm. I might as well experience the same daily fears 
while traveling the country or the world. And, and, you know, it was a different time when I was, (laughs) when I was in college, but I traveled around Europe when I was studying Uh abroad. And I look back on that thinking like, okay, like, I think we tend to have less fear when we're younger and in college. Yeah. (laughs) But the things that I did back then as as an adult, I'm like, gosh, I hope that I get the courage to do that stuff again, or I cultivate the courage to do it again. Because those were incredible times. And travel is such an amazing experience for us as human beings Mm -hmm. that I really hope that people get out of their comfort zones to do more traveling because you learn so much. And I, I guess that brings me back to that question for you, Christine, about how it felt to end that trip. Like, and was it, was it an exact year? Did you stick to like a boundary of like, nope, we're coming back after this year. Did you want to come back earlier? Did you want to extend the trip? Mm -hmm. And how did you reintegrate into life after living in an RV? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I went through a really tough time. Like, you know how they talk about the, the five stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I really loved that life. And part of it was the life that I had been living before traveling. You know, I was, I was like I said, I was so maxed out. I was working all the time. I worked for a company that wanted me in the office every day. And I realized in my career, I've always been in jobs where, you know, I handled the country and I worked out of my home office and I traveled or I handled the Northeast and I traveled. And this was a job that they wanted me in the office and I really didn't need to be in the office. And I just realized like, I am just born an entrepreneur. Like I feel like a corralled Mustang. If somebody wants to make me come to an office from eight to five, I can't, I just, for me personally, I cannot do it. And so, especially, you know, having children and being involved in different things, like I I just felt so stifled. And the company that I was working for I mean, I love the people and everything, but I didn't, the life, that life of the grind was just the thought of that. I just couldn't handle it. And so when we came back, we ended up, we were up in Massachusetts. So we were in Plymouth in Boston and it was September. So we left in November and that's when we started our journey. And now it was September and we're up in the New England area. And it was one of those things where it's like, okay, we got to start thinking about where we're going to end up. And, you know, I personally wanted to end up in Nashville, like Franklin, Tennessee, and build a place. But trying to sell my husband and my family and everything, just I just didn't have it in me <laughs> to try to sell him on all that. So we ended up, and, and you know, where we live in, we live in north of Atlanta in a beautiful community called Chattahoochee River Club. And it's on the river. And I was telling Jason earlier that our backyard, you know, literally our backyard backs up to the National Forest and Lake Lanier. And so it's really beautiful. And the schools are great and all that kind of, you know, stuff when you have a family. And so we flew down here from Boston, like the end of September. And we ended up buying this house that I'm living in now, like in two days, like we knew the neighborhood, we knew we felt comfortable. So we bought this, we flew back and then we continued to Virginia and Pennsylvania, New York city. And where else did we go? Like the Carolinas and in Tennessee. And we ended up back here and just integrated. It was almost like as if it never happened. It was, it was weird, but we had been on a TV show as well called going RV 
so, you know, like a lot of people were really curious about our trip and all the things that we had done. But for me, I actually got really depressed because I loved, I loved the adventure. I loved the simplicity of our life and just not worrying about stuff, you know, having a lot of stuff. I really enjoyed just the more simple life of, of experiences and just having that freedom, like what you mentioned earlier, where, you know, if we wanted to go to Texas, let's go to Texas, we'll go there next. And, you know, looking to see, well, what else do we want to do? We had that freedom to do that. So going back to traditional life was, for me, it was not easy. I, I did, I would have liked to have traveled more, like maybe another six months. I'm super curious how how this experience and reintegrating back to being a homeowner and and settling in a in a new community how that experience in general and I and I suppose your your personal opinion on materialism one thing that Whitney and I are are really passionate about exploring even more through many many you know channels is this idea of minimalism mm-hmm. and not necessarily minimalism for the sake of being, how do I say this, sort of a spiritual ascetic. You know, if we look at monks or priests or whatever, or, or people that I've said, you know, you know, issue all your material possessions and, and just be one with life or spirit or God. Mm-hmm. It, it's not minimalism necessarily for that aspect, but more like, how can I create more peace in my life, peace of mind, simplicity? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, as you're on this road trip for a year in this RV and you come back to having a home and settling down and grounding again, Mm-hmm. What did that do to your relationship to things, you know, cars and goods and, and you know, furnishing a house again? And mm-hmm. and also as a sub question, I feel like materialism is very much imbued in the idea of a lot of people's version of success. You know, so many, uh, again, thought leaders and gurus and experts are like showing off their cars and their their private planes and their big houses. And it's like, is that really what success is all about is stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I tell people, like for me and my business, you know, financial abundance to me is more about what you mentioned earlier, Jason, about freedom and being able to give to other people and be able to, you know, give people a leg up and do good. You know, I, although I do have an alter ego named Ivana who does enjoy the finer things in life. So, I mean, it's, it's not that I want to like go live in a shack or anything, but I definitely, I definitely am not like stuff doesn't mean anything to me as far as like, I'm not attached to stuff. Like I don't have, like, I've got more of a minimalist mentality in my home. Like it's decorated nicely. And, and, you know, like I, we had to go on the marketplace, you know, on Facebook and buy stuff. Cause I'm like, we can't afford to pay for (laughs) furnishing our house. But I do, I do enjoy beauty. I do enjoy having a beautiful environment. Like that's actually a really important thing to me because I grew up in a really dumpy house and I would be embarrassed about my home, you know, where I grew up. And I remember as a kid saying, I'm going to always be proud of my home. Like it's always going to be clean and it's going to be nice and decorated nice. So, I mean, I do like nice, I like a nice environment, a beautiful environment, but I'm very, I don't like clutter. Like I am a freak. My kids will probably be in some kind of therapy for like the fact that I get rid of everything. Like, you know, when you get the mail and people like can pile up, I just do not have any, you know, like my counters are very clean. I don't have 
shot skis or whatever they call like knickknacks. I don't have a lot of knickknacks, but I've got like cool pictures, you know, like pictures from our travels. You know, that's probably the most important thing to me is our photographs, which create, those are the memories. But I do believe that having peace and being organized, like I'm a real freak about organization, that creates peace because I don't waste time stressing about where things are. I know everything has its place. And like, you know, my desk is always pretty neat. And if it gets cluttery, I got it before I can function, I got to have everything orderly. So, you know, living in the RV, we didn't accumulate much because there's not a lot of space. So I don't like clutter. So we didn't really, you know, really it's our pictures and our videos and I blogged about it. And so, yeah, to answer your question, material things like right now, if somebody were to say, Christine, you could travel, you know, I would love to go travel Europe and sell our house and do the same thing again. I would totally do it. The thing is when you get married and you have a family, it's not just about me anymore, (laughs) which is, that's the thing. So if you guys want to do that, if you're single and you can do it, do it before you have to sell everybody else. Yeah. This thing, this thing about I don't know, times of our lives is is interesting. And and Whitney, you mentioned that time in, you know, your early twenties where you did all that traveling around Europe. And what comes up for me is almost like this this idea that at different stages of our life we're supposed to have different things or do different things. You know, what one thing that I'm feeling is almost like this pressure to accomplish or have or be do be or do certain things depending on my age and Mm -hmm. it's this strange conditioning that i'm unraveling right now and that i see a lot of friends struggling with of okay we're you know we're in our our, whatever it is it's it's arbitrary you know we're in our 30s now we're not in our 20s anymore we're in our 40s we're in our 50s we we ought to have this level of financial security or we ought to have this style of house or Mm -hmm. again kind of unraveling these subconscious belief systems and these conditionings that oftentimes bring us a lot of misery if we feel like we're comparing ourselves to others and we're not in a place where we think we ought to be by a certain age. Mm-hmm. That's one thing recently. And and even, you know, this week, I'm just still like battling this idea of where I think I ought to be. And I'm not there by a certain age. It's really insidious. Yeah. It's really sticky for me. Yeah. Oh, I and totally get, I get that. Yeah. And it's like, how how do we... <laughs> how do we practice just accepting where we're at? Because I, th- I think the tricky thing about, you know, self-improvement, transformation, working with coaches, the, wor- the world that we're all in here is so often I feel like I have been motivated by this idea, going back to our maybe central theme of this episode of not enoughness, of I'm not enough, I need to be doing better, making more, accomplishing more. I need to go hire a coach or take a workshop or read a book that'll show me how to be more. But instead of coming from a place of, say, excitement or curiosity or experimentation, my desire to grow or transform a lot of times in my life has been motivated by I'm not enough. I need to be and do more. So Mm -hmm. I need to transform to be a better person. But it was coming from a place of feeling like I wasn't enough as I was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that for me is like a passion of mine is this whole idea of, you know, belief drives behavior, right? What we believe drives how we think, which drives how we feel, which drives what we do or how we act, which ultimately drives the results in our life. So, well, what do we believe? And 
it's like what we believe comes from what we feed our minds. And, you know, in our culture today, we've, we're being fed so much stuff at a subconscious level. Like, and it's like having that awareness. And I, I love you, both of you. I know we've talked about a lot about, about self-awareness and I know for myself, like when I start feeling like I'm not enough, when I start feeling, because even though, even though you like you guys, you know, your personal development students of yourself as well, and in learning all these different things, it's like, even though there's, there's all these things that I've learned and I know at an intellectual level, it's just every day that intentionality of managing my thoughts and you know, for me, I started my company a year ago and I mean, it's just been so much harder than I thought. I'm, you know, as a achiever, you know, it's like, oh, I should have had all this done already and beating myself up and, and just like all these things. And, and I'll find myself having all this negative self-talk and it's like, what is going on? And all this self-doubt. And then I'm like, okay, I got to shift my thinking. I got to, I got to like immerse myself in some information that helps me with my thinking. And like, for example, you know, I'll listen to some podcasts about marketing and like, you know, people who have, it's taken them a long time to get going or here, listen to some success stories. Like I'll start whatever it is that I'm struggling with. I'll try to seek out content, information, people, you know, I, there's like a company nearby that's there at a WeWork place. And I, I met the CEO and then I reached out to him and was like, can I just meet with you for coffee? I'd like to ask you some questions about your success. And it's like, then I shift my thinking. And then there's a book called Everybody Always by Bob Goff. And I was, I've been, I was reading that in the morning and it's just about loving everyone. And it was so helpful because it's like if, you know, and I try to really not watch a lot of stuff that's going on. Like I want to be, I want to understand what's happening in the world, but not to the point where all of this messaging is just, it's it's just uh, toxic. And I just notice, like when I get really intentional about what I'm feeding my mind, that shifts my thinking and my feeling. So when I'm feeling like I'm not enough or, you know, like it's funny because I was, I was, you know, in my head, just, you know, like feeling like, oh my gosh, I got it. I got all these things I got to do and I, I got to do more. And then I listened to a podcast. It was an Oprah podcast. And it was this guy that wrote a book called Be Still. And this is a guy who's traveled all over the world. He was like a journalist and he was just sharing his story about being still and how he loves just going out in his yard and appreciating what's in his yard and he's living a very simple life. And that just gave me a new perspective when I'm trying to, you know, be this big achiever. So I think it's, Jason, I think it's just a struggle for everybody. It's like, it's like we have to be constantly managing our thinking and what we're taking into our mind that helps us shift whatever those, you know, those negative thoughts are that internal dialogue that doesn't serve us. I was watching a, a stand-up comedy routine, which is one of the things that I've been using as a, I suppose, an emotional anchor uh -huh. to create some joy in my life. And the comedian Patton Oswalt, in a recent special, it's become 
I don't know if I want to call it a mantra per se, but something that I've been hanging my hat on, I suppose, yeah. mentally. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, ab- about life in general, especially most recently, he said, it's chaos. Be kind. And this idea of it's chaos, be kind. Mm. That was just like the one. He had a lot of great jokes, but that nugget, that mm. little nugget that might have been innocuous. I was like, that's really good. It's chaos. Be kind. And to me, I realized that when I'm in chaos, how can I be kinder to myself? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would love to know in your uh, proverbial tool belt, so to speak, which is sort of the terminology we like to use. What are some of the things that when you find yourself in chaos or believing negative thoughts or getting sucked into toxicity or, or distraction, the things we're discussing, do you have, you know, prayer, meditation, affirmations, journaling? What are, what are kind of like in your, in your superhero tool belt, mm-hmm. what are maybe like a few things that you really use as a bedrock to go back to when you're in that state of, of being in need to pull yourself back to a more positive state? Yes. And, and I do this every day, actually, every morning. So the first thing I do, you know, I got my coffee and then I've like a friend of mine, there's, I have several women that I'm doing, I do this mastermind with, and we're doing, going through this Bible app. And so like, that's my first thing. And then I read a devotional and I pray and I write, I journal and I do this probably 95%, you know, it's not, nobody's perfect. So that's why I tell people, if you'd miss a day, don't beat yourself up. It's Okay. But predominantly, uh, every day, I do that. And I pray and I give it up. I give it up to the Lord. For me, I give it up to the Lord. So for everybody, whatever people believe, it's kind of like surrendering to that higher power, whatever that higher power is for you. And when you realize, like, I really, I can guide and direct my life and I can co-create my life, but I'm not in control of all this stuff. And it really comes in in journaling gratitude, being grateful, I tell you, has really transformed my life because I can think of a number of times in my life. There was a time when my, my kids, I'd had my son and my daughter and I had just finished the executive MBA program. I was working for a finance company. I'd just gone to Singapore and Bangkok, Thailand for international business. You know, I wanted to live overseas I wanted to work for a company where I'd have to live somewhere to learn a new language. And, you know, I had all these aspirations. And then I had my children and my son started having all these respiratory issues. And I was traveling a lot for my job. And then I was like, what am I doing? You know, he was having all this, all these different medications and he's just like a baby. And I, I felt such conviction on my heart because I'm like, why did I have a kid if I'm going to be gone and my poor baby's sick all the time? Well, then we made the decision for me to take some time off and be home. And it was the hardest thing because my whole identity was being a businesswoman and these dreams I had of living overseas and, you know, all of this stuff. Well, now I went from being a vice president to being a sproutlet and um, knowing all the wiggle songs and like literally it's 24 seven high alert. When you have a baby and a toddler no one prepares you. I mean, it is, it's a lot. And so I just remember being in like the fetal position in the closet, you know, I had my kids safe and then I was just like crying my eyes out. And I was like, you know, this is so hard. Like I can present to an executive team of a fortune 500 company, but these little people, they're killing me. And I found myself just getting into a really bad place, like mentally, emotionally, 
And if there's any women, any moms out there, you probably can relate because it's it's hard when you have uh, babies and um, it, your life is not yours at all. And I mean, I love my kids and I'm so thankful for them, but I was in such a bad place emotionally and I was so ungrateful. I mean, I think about my thoughts and I think about how I just... I just had the worst attitude. And I remember thinking to myself, this is not me. You know, who have I become? And I immersed myself. I thought I have got to change my thinking because this is wrong. And I immersed myself in like all, you know, only positive lyric music. And I would journal every day what I was grateful for, like, and totally shifted my thinking it was very interesting. And I started journaling the characteristics of what I wanted in my life. I didn't say specifics of what I wanted, but I journaled the characteristics because I wanted, I loved the business world, but I, I didn't want to be away from my kids. It's like this tension. And I started, I'm telling you, Jason Whitney, within a like a week and a half, I just totally shifted my thinking and immersed myself in only good things all of a sudden I get a call from a guy that I worked with like 10 years ago who went to a lot of trouble to find me. And then this recruiter calls me and I end up getting a job with a company handling the Southeast. And it was a job that came really easy to me. I traveled, but I was, I had a flexible schedule. I made great money. Like it was very interesting because my, all my energy completely shifted. And so I've been there and done that numerous times. You know, we all can get stuck. Everybody, no matter how positive you are, you can get stuck and feel, you know, just feel like you, your life sucks, but it doesn't. (laughs) It's like, it's like taking, being intentional about saying, all right, I've got to change my thinking and my perception. And it really does start with gratitude and seeing all the goodness in our lives. And when we start doing that, it's incredible what opens up. And, you know, like what you were mentioning, Jason, just where we can feel like comparing ourselves to other people and all of that, you know, it is, it's just like figuring out what can I feed my mind to shift that kind of thinking? Cause it's, it's not true. So I, I totally get what you're saying. And it's, it's an, it's a daily activity to really be intentional with our thoughts. I think it's important to remember that the word practice, I think is so applicable to many of the things we're discussing, whether that's a prayer practice or a meditation practice or a gratitude practice. And that word doesn't mean that we're going to get to, I suppose, this perfected state of, you know, and that's, that's another thing is this idea of perfectionism, I suppose, of, of if I just do things quote the right way and I check the boxes in this specific order and I follow the formula in this way, then I'll, I'll reach I suppose, the state of perfectionism. And it's an interesting word because I feel like it's loaded for a lot of people where mm-hmm. if we if we have this idea of perfection in our mind and we achieve it, then we will feel validated, right? We'll feel like our life was worth it. We made it. We finally did it. But I find that the, who's the car company? The Relentless Pursuit of Perfection, that's mm-hmm. Lexus. I love that. And it's like the Relentless Pursuit of Perfection. It's almost as if, on some level, we know we're not going to get to a perfected state, but there's this 
pursuit of it almost, or, yeah. or this idea in our minds of what that is for us. And of course, it's different for each person. But I, th- I think the comparison trap and perfectionism sort of interweaves into this complex psychological narrative of, well, I need to be like that person. I need to be like my hero. I need to be like these people I've been following. Mm-hmm. But I think oftentimes when we're pursuing perfection, sometimes we can get lost of becoming who we were meant to be mm-hmm. because we're trying to be something else. Yes. It's, it's a really, it's a slippery slope. All of, A lot of this is very slippery. It is. It is. There's a quote and, you know, this in, in, this is how people can take it however they want, but it says, celebrate what God gave others and leverage what God gave you. Or, you know, if whatever a person's belief is, it's like celebrate what other people's gifts are and leverage what your gifts are. And one of the things I think is so cool thinking about comparison is, I don't know if you, do you guys ever watch American Idol? Oh yeah, for sure. I wanted to actually compete on it. I almost Uh did. (laughs) <laughs> well, one of the things that I've loved is I tell people like, cause I speak to students, like I'm, I'm involved with the um, mentor me North Georgia organization and talking to them about comparison and that comparison is the, the thief of joy. And that, you know, this whole idea of celebrating your gifts, because there's only one you like something that you're good at someone else isn't. But a lot of times what you're good at, you don't even realize it because it comes easy to you. And so this whole idea of of really recognizing that whatever someone else is really good at that you wish you were good at, there's things you're really awesome that they're not. So, you know, on American Idol, my favorite thing is when, you know, they have people that are singing all the same genre, right? They're singing the same exact genre, but they sing it so differently. And, you know, the judges are always like, they love when people are authentic, to who they are. Like, don't try to be somebody else, be authentic to who you are. And I just think that's so cool because, you know, a lot of times those young people, the people that are on those shows, it can be so, talk about getting caught up in comparison, talk about managing your thinking. I think that's really sound advice at any age, honestly. Mm -hmm. And Christine, I, I want to direct the listeners to the wonderful resources you have if they want to get more inspirational mind food, as you call it. So <laughs> for you, dear listeners, to go to our website, it's wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Go ahead and click on the podcast section. It will take you to the show notes and the transcript for this episode where we will mention all of the resources, all the amazing diamond quotes that Christine dropped today. You can get those there. And we will link to her website, Christine M. Roberts, where you can sign up for her mailing list, read her incredible blog, check out her mindset programs and all the wonderful offerings that she has. She has a great Instagram feed. She has a YouTube channel. And in fact, as as we're wrapping, Christine, I, I have a request. You can do what you want with it, but I feel uh-huh. like story time with Christine. Oh. <laughs> you're again to go back to my comment, I think you're such a wonderful storyteller. You imbue so much emotion and depth and detail in the stories you tell. And I think it's wonderful and rare and very unique. And we just want to thank you so much for bringing so much love and perspective and heart to the podcast today. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I just adore you both. And I hope that we can meet in person one of these days. Hotlanta, a trip to Hotlanta yes. is in the works at some point. And you can stay in my house. I got plenty of space. Or perhaps we meet at the Cranberry Bog. <laughs> <Where's> the- <laughs> yeah. Oh, we can go up to Plymouth. That's right. Because you're from Massachusetts, Whitney. 
Yep. And I've never been to a cranberry bog. So, uh, well, hey, we've got a connection up there. So that would be fun too. <laughs> the benefit no one will ever get a UTI. Yay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 